Hi, everybody, and welcome back. And once again, we'd like to thank everyone for listening. I was thinking that we probably have the best performing and least listened to handicapping podcast out there. We got a 10 and 2 record and like 10 followers over four weeks of the season. So we're off to a grand start. <laughs> once, once everybody starts listening, we'll figure a way to start losing some of these games or something. Uh, but anyway, I'm your Oracle, Jeff Horton. I'm here with Jamie, the Prophet Pascal. And we're hell-bent on continuing our win streak this week with another four free plays. Even if you don't even like what we say, just fast-forward it to the end and get those winners and go count your cash. So this week, I'm going to cover two games off the beaten Power 5 path. And uh, I want to kind of open up our audience's eyes to some of the intriguing coaches and teams that are out there out of the MAC and the Sun Belt. And Jamie's going to hit the primetime Sunday and Monday night matchups in the NFL. So without further ado, I'll get things started for us in the MAC with the Miami, Ohio, and Buffalo matchup at 3.30 on Saturday. All right, so let's kick things off at the 3.30 Miami, Ohio, and Buffalo Bulls start. Uh, just to kind of touch base, their head coach is Chuck Martin. He's in his ninth year with the Red Hawks. He's kind of really done a solid job turning around their program. They were 0-12 the year before he took over. His first two years, he was 2-10 and and 3-9 and straight up and just 2-6 and in conference each year. So I always say it's year three is a difference maker for a good coach. And in his third year, he finished 6-7 and with a 6-2 and in conference record. He hasn't had a losing conference record since. And uh, he won two MAC East championships won overall MAC championships, and probably most wouldn't remember him from the D2 powerhouse, Grand Valley State, where he went 74-7 and and 55-3 and in conference with two Division II national titles. That was from 2004 to 2009. And then in 2005-7, and he actually set an all-time Division II record of 40 straight wins. That's pretty good, the Division II program. So... From 2005 to 2009, too, his Lakers team, they only lost one regular season game, and they set a record of 48 straight wins, which broke the previous mark of 29 straight wins from who? Brian Kelly. He's a common theme throughout the course, I guess, today. So, uh, Also, guess who hired Chuck Martin at Notre Dame as his offensive coordinator in 2012? when they went 12-0 and and lost to Alabama in the BCS championship game. So needless to say, his hire as a head coach in 2014 by Emmy of Ohio was as nonchalantly underrated as they come, I think. And I, I would say don't be surprised if LSU doesn't get their offense together soon, you don't see old Chuck Martin teaming back up with Kelly there as his offensive coordinator. Or... You know, maybe even Chuck Martin gets a nod as the next new Power 5 coach that nobody else really knows about except for us. So, a little tidbit for you there. On the flip side of the ball with the Buffalo Bulls, you got Maurice Linguist. He's in his second year with the Bulls. His resume isn't quite as impressive. Uh, he did serve as Buffalo's defensive back coach in 2012, but they were only, you know, just a mere you know, uh, four and eight that year. So he spent the next five seasons as either a defensive backs, safety or cornerback coach 
for Iowa State, Mississippi State, Minnesota, and A&M. Then uh, he did a one-year stint in the NFL as a Cowboys defensive back coach. So <laughs> they gave up 30 points a game that year. So I don't know that he's that great at what he does all the time, but that, that organization was in shambles that year as far as defense was concerned anyway. Uh, he was originally hired as the co-defensive coordinator from Michigan after that, but Buffalo snagged him away and hired him as their head coach instead. So he took over for the heralded Lance Leopold, who turned them around in his six seasons and now is doing something jaw-dropping at Kansas. I don't know if y'all are following Kansas out there, but they're 4-0, and they look pretty impressive this year under him. So um, needless to say, you know, after Lance's 24-10 and and straight up and 17-4 and conference record his last three years with Buffalo, Maurice came in and dropped it to 5-11 and straight up and 3-6 and in conference so far. So I'm not sure that's in the right direction. But, uh, you know, who knows, maybe some of these returning players will help them out. I'm going to move on to that. We're going to go with the Miami, Ohio team first, though. So they return nine on offense and six on D. Uh, on their offense, uh, it's basically highlighted by four running backs that all average over 5.3 yards per carry. So three of them are only sophomores, and you got one junior. So and then you got a stud senior wideout who's averaged 15.6 yards per catch over his career and already has four touchdowns this year. And yeah, I'm going to say his name, Mac Hippenhammer. So just threw it out there. Figured y'all going to remember this name, Mac Hippenhammer. Okay. So you might hear it in the draft next year. Don't be surprised if you do. Uh, so anyway, their supposed starter quarterback is Brett Gabbert for Miami, Ohio. But and yeah, he is Blaine Gabbert's little brother. So, uh, but he, you know, in, in the opener, uh, actually, you know, quite frankly, though, he was on the radar before the opener as uh, you know a player to watch for the Walter Camp Player of the Year award. But he got hurt in the Kentucky game, which was their opener. And uh, in his absence, a freshman, Avion Smith, has taken over. And he's done quite a nice job. So he's got a 116 quarterback rating and a 62 touchdown to pick ratio. So not so bad. Um, Buffalo, they're not as fortunate. They're only returning four on offense and six on D. So Linguist went and hit the transfer portal to bring in a Baker's dozen of, you know, of hope. But... So far, they're only averaging 3.1 yards per carry and 11.4 yards per completion. So I don't know how well that's going to bode for the rest of the season, but, you know, they did lose at home already to Holy Cross. But, you know, then on the road to Maryland and Coastal Carolina, they both lost, they lost both of those games. And their lone win was at Eastern Michigan, who really can't stop anybody. Um you know, so they could get off to a rough start this year. I'm not sure if they're really going to get off the ground under Linguist, uh, or they might just end up bringing somebody else in because Buffalo has typically been a winning program before in the past, but it just looks like sometimes you get a little bit antsy, I guess, as an athletic director and might bring in somebody as a knee-jerk reaction. Maybe that's the case here in Buffalo. 
Um, anyway, let's cover some stats for you too. So Chuck Martin, check this out, is nine and three straight up and against the spread in MAC games, coming off a straight up underdog win, and that is including six and zero straight up and against the spread off the back off a back to back against the spread wins. And guess who they just beat outright last week on the road? Northwestern. So that stat fits for a 9-3 straight up and against the spread angle, as well as a 6-0 straight up and against the spread angle. That's a really good positive mark for them. Uh, Buffalo, they were a measly 2-8-1 against the spread last year, including 0-2 as a home favorite in Lingua's first year. So, And they lost outright as six-point favorites this year to Holy Cross. Now they open up as a pick against Miami, Ohio at home, and the public has already bet them up to two. 73% of the public likes Buffalo in this game. Hell no. Give me Miami, Ohio with a big blowout win in Buffalo as a two-point dog at this point. Give me Miami, Ohio 38, Buffalo 17. Now let's check in on the next game we got coming up here in the evening. All right, so our nighttime start is going to be a 7 o'clock game Eastern time, and that's UL Monroe and Arkansas State. So first off, Jamie, with this game, I considered doing a big-time primetime SEC game like the LSU-Auburn, but then I thought, well, why not just drop down one game in the rotation schedule and kind of you know really inform our listeners with two ex-SEC coaches, and they're both in their second year at their respective schools. So let's start off with UL Monroe first. Guess who's back? Terry Bowden. I know everybody out there has got to remember Terry Bowden. So, uh, you know, going way back, Bowden took over for Pat Day at Auburn in 92 when they were in the middle of all the NCAA sanctions that were going on and whatnot. And and in, in 93, in his first year, he actually led the Tigers to a perfect 11 0 season. And added a 9-1-1 season in 94, along with the school's longest win streak in history at 20. So, however, in 98, the wheels fell off. And he resigned after a 1-5 record with an Auburn newspaper actually claiming a novel title, A Legend's Son, is a thinly disguised satire of Bowden's rise and fall at Auburn so in like a lion uh, like a lamb so uh, he went into broadcasting for ABC Sports for a little bit but then in uh, 2007 he said he wanted to start coaching again in 08 so he started back at the D2 level in 08 with Northern Alabama so he replaced Mark Hudspeth. Some of you all might remember Mark Hudspeth. So he replaced him, and then he went 29-9 and and 14-6 and in conference in his three years there. So he never kind of really could get Akron off the ground, but then again, nobody really ever has. As uh, you know, But Bowden did lead the Zips to two of their three bowl appearances in program history. And he won their only bowl game ever. So he went there for a little bit of time after North Alabama. And then in 2019, Terry, oddly enough, 
went to Clemson and joined their staff as an unpaid intern, and then he received a graduate degree there. So anyway, now he's at UL Monroe, and he's in his second year. He's hoping to continue to improve his team on both sides of the ball, as he did last year. And he might have the potential with his returning players. So I'll get to that again shortly, like I usually do. Uh, on the flip side, for Arkansas State, you got Butch Jones. So everybody kind of knows Butch Jones and what he's about. Uh, here he comes. Everybody who's been around long enough remembers Butch for his work that he did at Central Michigan from 98 to 2009 on the offensive side of the ball. So as their head coach from 07 to 09, he went 27 and 13 overall and 20 and 3 in conference before exiting to Cincinnati. And why does everybody seem to be replacing Brian Kelly? That's another story, maybe for another podcast. Maybe next week we'll throw that in there or something like that. But anyway, in 09, Jones replaced Kelly when he left to go to Notre Dame. So, and then uh, in Butch Jones' three years at Cincinnati, he went 23 and 14 and 12 and 9 in conference before heading to Tennessee to replace Derek Dooley there. So now is when all you youngsters out there will probably remember uh, Butch Jones as he, you know, he kind of turned the vials from a 5-7 and seven team in 2013 when he took over to back-to-back 9-4 and four seasons in 2015 and 2016. So the problems, though, they, they started in 2017 when Kirby Smart got his Bulldog team right in his second year and came into Knoxville and just put a 41 to nothing drubbing on the Vols, which was their worst shutout loss in Nayland Stadium history. So, and in November of that year, Jones was fired and was the only the second SEC coach ever to be fired mid-season. That's something that maybe everybody don't know. But anyway, after a two-year stint in Bama as an offensive analyst and assistant head coach. Then he replaced Blake Anderson at Arkansas State, where he is now in 2020 as their head coach. So after a 2-10 and 10 straight up and a 1-7 and 7 start in conference last year, he's aiming to get this program back to its glory days of bowling for nine years straight prior to that. So he, unlike Bowden, doesn't have the returning production, but he hit the transfer portal instead, which I'm going to go ahead and get to now. So, uh, like I mentioned earlier, uh, you know, well, I actually, let's kind of go, let's kind of go with the returning players for UL Monroe first, I guess, uh, starting off with the Warhawks, they, they return eight on offense and six on defense, and that includes 10 of their 11 top receivers. So they also bring back Matt Kubik, who people remember him as their offensive coordinator now this is he's coming back for a second stint at this team so he actually uh his teams in his final three seasons there he did head coach there for three years uh a little bit longer but his last three seasons there his teams put up over 500 yards in 13 games which is pretty ridiculous so and he can he can run an offense and 
Jones is going to figure out how to get it turned around. I, I can guarantee that one. The problem, though, so far is that they've only scored an average of 18 points per game. So maybe going into Texas and Alabama to start two of their first four games of the season wasn't such a great idea anyway. So I guess the jury's out on that as to whether or not you play that tough competition out of the gate before you go into conference play. I guess we'll see how it goes. But the good news is is that they beat you know, their crosstown rival, UL Lafayette, for the first time in five years after doing so. So maybe you know, there is a flip side to that. Maybe after those teams, they were like, thank God we get to play somebody we know. It's a little bit easier. So anyway, it's hard to get a great feel for how the rest of the returners will fare against their conference foes. But a total of 10 touchdowns in four games isn't groundbreaking by any means. So I, I guess we'll see. But you know, over to Arkansas State with their returners, like I mentioned earlier, Butch's, you know, Red Wolves, they only returned six on offense and seven on defense. But guess what? He hit that transfer portal hard. And he scored James Blackman from FSU along with six others who transferred in from Power 5 schools. So it also catapulted Arkansas State's recruiting class 35 places with him coming into town. So <clears throat> they're going to keep building. They're going to keep building back again there. So I would expect big things for him to come. So um, anyway, Blackman's came right in, and the shoe fits like a glove. So he's sporting a 68% completion ratio. He's got a 145 quarterback rating and a 5-to-1 touchdown-to-pick ratio. So you combine that with the senior Oregon State transfer, Champ Flemings, who already has more receptions this year than each of the last two years total and leads the team. And then you add in Johnny Lang, who transferred from Iowa State last year for Jones. He's averaging five yards a carry. You got junior Brian Sneed, who came this year from App State and already has four touchdowns on the year. And then A.J. Meyer from Miami, Ohio, who was their option in running quarterback and has two touchdowns in the 7.1 yard per carry average as well. So you have some legitimate home run hitters on that team, and they have the ability to score a lot of points. So from a stat standpoint, um, for UL, Monroe, nothing really stands out, except over the last three years, they're 0-13 straight up and 3-10 against a spread, and that, that's on the road. And then they're only 1-12 in conference straight up and 4-9 against a spread. So, I mean, you know, those two pretty negative trends toward them. I don't know that they'll get that figured out or not, but maybe it takes a little bit longer than this. As far as Arkansas State is concerned, uh, they are 11-1 as a favorite of less than 14 points coming off a conference game versus an opponent off a straight-up win, which fits this bill very, very strongly. So they're a seven-point favorite at home this year. So, you know, that that, that works. Um, they're also 4-0 against the spread this year, including covers at Ohio State and Memphis on the road. Um, and then overall... You know, it doesn't bode well all the time because the team's changing stuff, much like UL Lafayette and Moreau, you know, last week. But Arkansas State is 18-4 and four straight up and 15-7 and seven against the spread versus UL Monroe since 97, including 10-1 and one straight up and 7-4 and against the spread at home. So there is that. Um, sometimes teams are just, 
you know, perennially better than others. But, you know, sometimes they can change with the coaches and stuff. But anyway, with UL Monroe coming off a huge, huge emotional win at home versus Lafayette to beat that crosstown rival, and Arkansas State losing its conference opener at Old Dominion last week, I'm looking for the... I really kind of just think that the Red Wolves are going to rebound in a big way at home. I'm going to go 45-24. to 24. Arkansas State beats UL Monroe. And that's going to cover the seven points pretty easily. Give them their first conference win. Make them both even up at 1-1 one one in conference play. Now, over to the NFL and Jamie the Prophet to give us some insight on these primetime games this weekend. Thank you, Sir Jeff, for the analysis on the collegiate ranks and playing six degrees of separation with Brian Kelly. Um, yeah, we're not going to mention Brian Kelly at all here with the NFL games. Uh, but now I'm going to turn our attention to Sunday when what better way to cap off the fourth Sunday of the regular season than with a rematch of Super Bowl 55 as the Tampa Bay Buccaneers play host to the Kansas City Chiefs from Raymond James Stadium in Tampa, Florida. Yes, it's actually going to be played at Tampa's uh, home stadium, even though it's all in the aftermath of uh, Hurricane Ann. Anybody that uh, has family living down there or is listening from anywhere in Florida, I uh, hope everybody's safe. Uh, prayers are with you. Um, in the meantime, after advancing to four consecutive AFC Championship games, 2022 figured to be a curious one for the Chiefs, who are 2-1, and one, tied for first in the AFC West, who followed the offseason departure of one of their biggest weapons, underwent a bit of retooling on the fly. By no means did anyone really believe that the Kansas City would be rebuilding this season, but it certainly felt as if they were embarking on a new chapter of football at Arrowhead, particularly after parting ways with Tyreek Hill. The league's premier vertical threat was traded to the Dolphins for a windfall of draft picks, including first, second, and fourth round picks in last spring's NFL draft, along with another fourth and sixth next year. Granted, the moment that Patrick Mahomes put pen to paper on that 10-year, $450 million contract, I'll say it again, $450 million contract, by my math, Jeff, that's almost half a billion dollars, right? I think it's a lot of money, Dan. I <laughs> yeah. think it's a lot of money. He's living his best life, and I'm sure his wife appreciates that as well. Um, but the moment that he signed that, it, that signaled the intent that the Chiefs would eventually have to cut bait with various members of the sporting cast, with Andy Reid and Brett Veach opting to reinvest those picks and cap space into other areas of the teams. After all, football is a business, at least on this level it is. The defense received the bulk of the reinforcements during the offseason as Reed and Veach selected defensive end George Karlathis and cornerback Trent McDuffie in the first round while signing Justin Reed and Carlos Dunlap in free agency. With that said, the offense received a bit of attention too, for someone would have to fill the shoes of Hill, right? The team added Juju Smith-Schuster and Marquez Valdez-Scantling on very reasonable deals. So somebody is playing, you know, they're, 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 somebody would like to buy a Val with the names of these jerseys, they really would. Um, so how have the Chiefs performed on both sides of the football, you ask? Well, unsurprisingly, with Reed and Mahomes there, they've been among the league's best in each regard. Reed's troops have averaged 29.3 points per game, fourth overall, on 378.7 total yards, seventh overall, including 285.7 yards via the pass, sixth overall, on a healthy 7.9 net yards per attempt, 
fourth overall, while converting 40% of their third downs, 12th overall, and put, punching it in on 69.2% of their chances in the red zone, which is seventh best in the league. Yeah, no surprise, the offense is still very good. For his trouble, Mahomes doesn't appear to miss Hill one bit, with the former Super Bowl champion completing a career-high 67.9% of his passes with eight touchdowns in comparison to just one interception, parlaying to a touchdown percentage of 7.3%, which is his highest since his MVP campaign of 2018. Again, he's really good. Meanwhile, the defense has been much stouter in the early goings than it was at this time last year, with Steve Spagnuolo's unit yielding the 10th fewest yards in the NFL thus far at 314 yards per game. And though they've been stellar on third down, giving up a conversion rate of 32.6%, they've capitulated far too often in the red zone, shipping a touchdown on 72.7% of their opponent's attempts. That's 27th overall in the league. After obliterating the Cardinals in a 44-21 route on opening weekend and rallying back to stun the Chargers in a 27-24 victory just four days later, the Chiefs were in for a rude awakening as they traveled to Indianapolis last week, where the Colts proved to be a real pain in their ass despite experiencing their own struggles through the first two weeks of action. Kansas City led 14-10 at halftime of what had been largely an uneventful affair, or at least until late in the fourth quarter, which is where things got a little wild. After linebacker Nick Bolton sacked Matt Ryan for an eight-yard loss, defensive tackle Chris Jones was flagged for unsportsmanlike conduct, taunting Ryan, breathing new life into the Colts, who continued to bleed time off the clock, running it down to 29 seconds as they logged the go-ahead touchdown. Mahomes was able to pilot the offense to midfield before a short pass over the middle, intended for Smith-Schuster, was intercepted, sealing their fate. In the end, the Chiefs possessed the ball for just 26 minutes and 28 seconds and were overly one-dimensional, rushing for only 54 yards despite 23 carries. Mahomes was just 20 of 35 for 262 yards with a touchdown and an interception, with the unit as a whole converting just 3 of 10 third downs and half of their two attempts on fourth. The outcome was hardly the fault of the defense, who relegated the Colts to 259 total yards while sacking Ryan five times and hitting him on ten occasions, though that gaffe from Jones proved to be detrimental. Looking at tonight's primetime showdown, Kansas City has lost two of their last three meetings with the Buccaneers straight up and have failed to cover the spread in any of them, with that embarrassing 31-9 defeat in Super Bowl 55 being their latest encounter. Mahomes struggled wildly behind a porous offensive line in that game, completing just 26 of 49 attempts with no touchdowns and a pair of interceptions, suffering three sacks and a fumble along the way. That performance prompted Reed and Veach to completely overhaul their quarterback's protection plan, assembling five new starters along the line last year. As for the rivalry between Mahomes and his opposite number in this matchup, who we're going to talk about shortly. The prolific 27-year-old is 2-3 all-time versus Tom Brady, completing 62.4% of his passes for 332.4 yards per game on 7.66 net yards per attempt with 11 touchdowns in comparison to 5 interceptions while suffering 10 sacks. Mahomes has bested him in two of their three regular season meetings, but Brady, as he typically does, has gotten the better of him in each of their two postseason encounters. On the injury front, kicking could continue to be an issue for Kansas City, as place kicker Harrison Bucker is listed as questionable again after missing the last two games with a sprained ankle. 
Meanwhile, they may be sitting atop the division, but the start of the 2022 campaign has been anything but easy for the Buccaneers. 2-1, first in the NFC South. They were coming off a rather eventful offseason. Tampa parted ways with a slew of veteran performers, and not to mention their head coach, Bruce Arians. So this could have been a full-blown rebuild had it not been for the return of one Tom Brady. By now, we know the story with this guy, who after calling it a career not long after his side's playoff exit, abruptly unretired following a brief six-week hiatus. He must be a Michael Jordan fan. This prompted the organization to keep as much as much continuity as they could in lieu of one last postseason run with the 45-year-old. The Bucks promoted defensive coordinator Todd Bowles to head coach, while retaining the services of offensive coordinator Byron Leftwich, who was in demand throughout the league's annual hiring cycle. However, let's make this crystal clear, folks. This is not the same team that Brady left back in January. The reigning NFC South champions bid farewell to the likes of Antonio Brown, his BFF Rob Gronkowski, along with offensive lineman Alex Kappa and Ali Mark pay, and that's just on the offensive side of the ball. Furthermore, Chris Godwin was coming off a torn ACL, and starting center Ryan Jensen suffered a season-ending knee injury early in training camp. Through the early stages of the season, Godwin has already missed time with a strained hamstring, while free agent signing Julio Jones has missed the last two games with a PCL tear in his knee. Oh, and Mike Evans was suspended for last weekend's loss at home to the Packers due to absolutely losing his mind and instigating a brawl against the Saints. And it's with that said that the stage was set for an offense that averaged 30.1 points per game last year to decline considerably. This year, the Bucks have meandered their way to 17 points per game on just 310 yards, including 224.3 through the air on 5.8 net yards per attempt, along with another 86 yards on the ground on 3.4 yards per carry. And if that wasn't bad enough, they ranked 28th in both third down offense, 28.6%, and red zone offense, 40%. For Brady's part, he's done everything he can with a makeshift supporting cast, going from a year in which he led the NFL in passing attempts, completions, yards, and touchdowns to a meager output of 673 yards, three touchdowns, and a pick. While the supporting cast has been far from great and his age may finally be affecting his play, I know a lot of people have been calling that for quite a while. There has been a noticeable lack of risk-taking from a play-calling perspective. Though Leftwich is back calling the shots offensively, the you know no-risk-it-no-biscuit mentality might have gone by the wayside with Bowles, who as a defensive coordinator by trade um, is, appears to favor a more conservative approach. Granted, given everything that we've discussed lately, that may be done out of necessity at this point. After carving out back-to-back -back wins over the Cowboys and Saints on the road, the Bucks returned home to face the Packers in a rematch of the 2021 NFC Championship game last weekend, with both teams entering the encounter with numerous notable absences. Tampa was without a plethora of weapons on the offensive side of the football, with the triumvirate of Evans, Godwin, and Jones all out of action due to the issues that I already touched upon. Billed as likely the final matchup between the greatest quarterbacks of this past generation, there was little to enjoy once the game was actually being played as both sides struggled mightily to move the ball. The Bucks endured the worst of it with just 285 total yards on 19 first downs, including a scant 34 rushing yards on 14 carries, while Brady completed 31 of 42 passes for 271 yards and a touchdown, suffering three sacks for a loss of 20 yards along the way. However, the bulk of his production came on the final drive of the afternoon, as he very nearly steered the hosts to an unlikely victory, trailing 14-6 with just over three minutes left to play. 
Bulls troops traveled 89 yards in 13 plays, aided by a key pass interference penalty in the red zone, with TB12 deftly completing 9 of 12 passes for 80 yards and a one-yard strike to young receiver Russell Gage. Looking to tie the game on the two-point conversion, the Bucks were flagged for a delay of game, backing up their attempt to the seven-yard line, with Brady's attempt to Gage fell, falling harmlessly to the ground, ending the contest at 14-12. to 12. It was a mixed bag for Gage, who had a golden opportunity to prove himself with so many absences in the receiving core, hauled in 12 catches on 13 targets for 87 yards and a touchdown, but also lost a crucial fumble at midfield in the third quarter. The defense certainly played their part against Rodgers and company, permitting just 315 total yards on 14 first downs, including 67 yards rushing on 25 attempts, with a pair of takeaways and permitting 6 of 15 on third down. Logan Ryan was Johnny on the spot, logging an interception and a fumble recovery from the home side, while rookie defensive lineman Logan Hall had the lone sack of Rodgers. Tonight's affair will see Brady go from one farewell to a rival to another, as this will likely be the final meeting between him and Mahomes, the youngest and most recent usurper of his crown. In five career encounters, Brady is 3-2 and two against him, completing 64.7% of his passes for an average of 280.6 yards on 7.2 net yards per attempt with nine TDs opposed to five picks. The Bucks are 6-3 and three in their last 10 games as an underdog against the spread, and though they don't meet very often, they are a commanding 5-1 and one in their last five games, actually that's six, as an underdog versus Kansas City. On the injury front, Evans will be available after serving his suspension, while Jones should be good to go after Bowles opted to keep him out of action last week as a precaution. Defensive tackle Akeem Hicks, who might be the biggest human being I've ever seen, is coming back from a tender hamstring injury. Lastly, because of Hurricane Ian, again, thoughts and prayers to everyone down there in Sunshine State. There was a strong likelihood that this game could be moved to Minneapolis, as the Vikings are off competing in London, but as I stated earlier, it will be played down in the Gulf of Florida. With two defenses playing at a high level, I wouldn't expect a classic shootout between these two sides, particularly when you consider how Spagnuolo and Bowles have vexed the hell out of Brady and Mahomes in the past. However, Brady should be relieved to get Evans and Jones back, and as we've seen so often in the past, he just seems to find ways to beat his counterparts in meetings such as these. In what very well may be their final encounter on the gridiron, give me Brady and the Bucks by a field goal, 26-23. All right, from one primetime affair to another, week four concludes with a bitter, as a bitter rivalry reconvenes with the reigning Super Bowl champion Los Angeles Rams battling the San Francisco 49ers under the bright lights of Monday Night Football from Levi Stadium in Santa Clara, California. In many ways, last season was the culmination of years of building for the Rams, who were 2-1 and one and first in the NFC West, who have lived and sometimes died by the, appro uh, the approach of amassing as many stars as possible at the expense of early draft picks and, by extension, precious roster depth. Over the past six years, Sean McVay and Les Snead have clearly felt that quality trumps quantity, with the franchise's brain trust engineering a plethora of trades to create arguably the most top-heavy team in the NFL, with last season's efforts paying huge dividends. Los Angeles acquired the services of Matthew Stafford via trade during the offseason, while further adding the likes of Von Miller and Odell Beckham Jr. midway through the campaign, with each playing a sizable role in leading them to its first Lombardi trophy since 1999, and their first since returning to the City of Angels seven years ago. Indeed, it's one of those stratagems that looks great when it pays off, though it can also make you look very foolish if it doesn't. Fortunately for McVeigh and Sneed, the ends have indeed justified the means, though that doesn't necessarily mean that the proverbial bill won't come due for long. That always happens to us at the bar, doesn't it? It always comes due. 
Right, right, right. Coming into this season, there were several concerns about LA's defense of their Lombardi Trophy, with a litany of holes to plug on offense and the health of their quarterback, above all, ranking at the top of the list. The Rams lost longtime left tackle and team captain Andrew Whitworth to retirement, while Beckham remains an unsigned free agent after tearing his ACL in Super Bowl 56, and not to mention offensive coordinator Kevin O'Connell, who is now the head coach of the Minnesota Vikings. Granted, McVay's always been the play caller, and he's grown accustomed to replacing his assistants. And the fact that he remains at the top of his game leads me to believe that there shouldn't be much of a decline on this side of the football, though the fears over Stafford's right arm are certainly palpable. After starting all 21 games for the team, including the playoffs, the 34-year-old was held out of most of the off-season activities due to what was described as quote-unquote arm fatigue, though it would later be revealed that he did in fact undergo surgery to correct the ligament damage in his right elbow. After setting franchise records in both passing yards and touchdowns in 2021, the early goings of the current campaign have been a mixed bag for Stafford, who has completed an efficient 72.5% of his passes, but has suffered nearly a third of the number of sacks that he did a year ago, with nine in the first three games, along with an NFL high five interceptions then again he threw 17 picks last year which was tops in the league uh no risk it no biscuit there we go again without a proper preseason to get back into a rhythm it appears that he and the rest of the attack are playing their way back into game shape though it remains to be seen if this is in fact a minor issue or a sign of more serious problems to come after appearing very uneven in their first two outings of the season against the bills and falcons the Rams continue to flex their dominance over NFC West rival Arizona, besting them in a 20-12 affair that wasn't as close as that final score would indicate. While the hosts were forced to punt on each of their first possessions of the evening, Los Angeles were met with very little resistance in running off 13 consecutive points on their first three drives of the first quarter. A pair of field goals from Matt Gay, bookended by a 20-yard jaunt courtesy of Cooper Cup. From that point, McVay's troops took their foot off the gas until producing back-to-back drives of 70-plus yards, with the first seeing Cam Akers run 14 yards off tackle into the end zone, while the latter saw the 23-year-old lose a fumble at the goal line. Fortunately, Raheem Morris's defense was in the Cardinals' head throughout the affair, relegating them to four field goals, along with 365 total yards and 6 of 18 on third down. In the end, Stafford was solid, if unspectacular, completing 18 of 25 passes for 249 yards in a sack, with Cup hauling in four catches for 44 yards in addition to that rushing score. And Akers putting together his most productive effort since he was a rookie two years ago with 61 yards and that score on a dozen carries. Three-time Defensive Player of the Year, Aaron Donald, continued to own the Redbirds, totaling six tackles and a pair for loss, including a sack. Last Sunday's victory was McVay's 11th in 12 meetings with Arizona, including the playoffs, and their sixth in a row in the desert. Now, from one end of the spectrum to the other, the Rams have not enjoyed much success against the Niners. Even with last year's triumph in the NFC Championship game, they've lost seven of their last 11 encounters, including six straight in the regular season. Of course, McVay and his counterpart, Kyle Shanahan, used to work together as assistants under the latter's father in Washington, and though they're two of the brightest offensive minds in the league, Shanahan has clearly had his former colleagues' number of late. Furthermore, Los Angeles is 3-7 and seven against, their spread, against the spread in their last 10 regular meetings, regular season meetings, that is, and 4-6 and six against the spread in the last 10 trips to San Francisco. In their three battles last season, Stafford had his ups and downs against the 49ers, completing 66.1% of his throws for only 172.6 yards on 6.3 net yards per attempt, with five touchdowns opposed to four picks and nine sacks. 
Meanwhile, it's been three games into the campaign, and the 49ers, one and two, tied for second in the NFC West, have already been forced to make a major change of quarterback, though there are many that feel that it could very well turn out to be a blessing in disguise. Following their defeat to the Rams in last January's NFC Championship game, there was a feeling that Jimmy Garoppolo had taken his final snap as a member of the Niners, with the franchise making public their intent to turn the reins over to Trey Lance. Take a third overall in the 2021 NFL Draft, Lance was deemed as a project by many, though his considerable athleticism and arm strength gave him an upside that his predecessor could only hope to possess. Despite earning a stellar 31-15 record as the starter in San Francisco and taking the club to a pair of NFC Championship games in three years, including an appearance in Super Bowl 54, Garoppolo has constantly been the subject of trade rumors as both Shanahan and general manager John Lynch seem perpetually ready to part ways with him. With the shift to Lance taking place last summer, the team was unable to find a trade for Jimmy G that was to their liking and refused to outright release him for fears of him signing with division rival Seattle. However, in a surprising turn of events, in the 11th hour, the 30-year-old restructured his contract to remain in Santa Clara at a discounted rate, which now looks like a stroke of good fortune for everyone involved. Of course, what I'm referring to is the season-ending injury to Lance, who broke his ankle evading the rush early in a 27-7 victory over the Seahawks two weeks ago. While this has the potential of creating even more uncertainty down the road, Shanahan and the rest of the coaching staff can take solace in the fact that the offense is in very capable hands. Garoppolo picked up where he left off in relief of the youngster, completing 31 of 20, I'm sorry, 13 of 21 passes for 154 yards and a touchdown and rushing for another against Seattle. With the offense marching 70-plus yards downfield on each of the first three drives of the day that he took part in. Maybe now this unit will regain the torrid form that it possessed over the second half of last season, where San Fran ran off eight of their final wins in eight of their final eleven regular season games, with the offense posting twenty six and a half points on three hundred and eighty seven point nine total yards, including one hundred and thirty one point four yards on the ground on four point four yards per carry. In the meantime, the defense has appeared to be in midseason form already, with D'Amico Ryan's troops yielding just 12.3 points per game on a scant 227 total yards, including 143 yards versus the pass on five net yards per attempt, with another 78.7 yards against the run on a really, really small 2.8 yards per carry. Granted, this unit has yet to face off against anything remotely close to a prolific offense, which will be the case tonight. When we last saw the 49ers, they came up short in another primetime showdown, this time in a trip to Mile High where the Broncos rallied back in a yawn-inducing battle that ended in an 11-10 defeat. What is this, baseball? Indeed, progress was glacial for both teams in this one as the combatants combined for 528 total yards of offense, 27 first downs, and a dismal 7 of 29 on third down. Jeff, I think you and I can put up better numbers than that. What do you think? I think we got a shot. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm hoping nobody had anybody on their song, either of those teams, from a fantasy perspective. I know I didn't. I did have uh, Denver's defense, though, by the way. Well, bravo. That worked out. <laughs> All right. Sure, both defenses played at a high level, but it's not as if either attack made it difficult for them. Running the football successfully is so often the barometer for success for the Niners, who struggle mightily when they can't move the chains on the ground, which was the case here. Shanahan's charges could muster 88 yards on just 19 carries, which became very apparent in the second half once all-pro left tackle, another tremendously large human being, Trent Williams, left the field with a sprained ankle. Over the final 30 minutes of game time, the visitors totaled a mere 83 yards, with a pair of lost fumbles, an interception, and a boneheaded safety from Garoppolo running out of the back of his end zone that made everybody on the West Coast shake their head, with the exception of Dan Orlovsky, who was happier than a pig in shit. 
If not for a short field goal set up by a muffed punt from the hosts, then it was highly probable that San Fran would have been shut out in the second half altogether. In the end, the 49ers possessed the football for only 25 minutes and 31 seconds, were 1 of 10 on third down, and committed three turnovers, while Garoppolo completed 18 of 29 passes for 211 yards with a touchdown and a pick, along with four sacks and a lost fumble. He was on my bench on my fantasy team. Whew, that was a good one. Jeff Wilson, who's uh, their backup running back turned starting running back, has been pressed into RB1 uh, duties due to injury, played with played well despite receiving just 15 touches for 106 yards, though he too was culpable with a costly fumble while Debo Samuel logged 73 yards on five catches. George Kittle made his debut with the team after missing the first two outings with a strained groin, though made little impact with four receptions for 28 yards. On a positive note, Ryans must have been happy to see his defense dominate permitting a mere 261 total yards with four sacks from as many different players. Moving forward to tonight's meeting with the Rams, the Niners should be confident in their ability to bounce back, for as I stated earlier, they've handled the NFC West rivals of late. Over the last six regular season encounters, San Francisco has outscored Los Angeles by an average margin of 8.5 points and outgained them by 78.3 yards. Garoppolo has never lost in the regular season to his division nemesis completing an efficient 68.3% of his attempts for 258.2 yards per game on a healthy 8.3 net yards per attempt with nine touchdowns, but here's the hook, seven interceptions. The 49ers are 5-5 five and five in their last 10 home games and 6-4 and four against the spread at Levi's Stadium, while posting a 7-3 and three mark against the Rams versus the spread. On the injury front, Williams has already been ruled out of action with that ailing ankle, while linebacker Aziz Al-Shair is out with a bulky knee, and Eric Armstead is questionable with a tender foot. Shanahan's mastery over McVay aside, six consecutive victories is a tough streak to keep going against a division rival, particularly against a quality opponent who did eliminate you from the playoffs in your most recent encounter. The loss of Williams looms large for the Niners, in my opinion, who looked completely lost last weekend in Denver. The Rams have yet to play a complete game thus far, though they have been presented with a golden opportunity to take advantage of a shorthanded division rival. At some point, Los Angeles is going to put it together for a full 60 minutes, and I believe it will indeed be on Monday night, so I'm projecting the reigning champs to win this one outright, 23-17. to And with that, we've concluded our fourth episode. Jeff and I would like to thank our listeners for lending us their precious time, and we certainly hope that you've been taking our advice to heart and to your wallet. In a business defined by your ability to win, we've done plenty of it on this podcast with our collective picks going 10-2 and thus far. Needless to say, these are free winners, folks. I I repeat, free fucking winners. The pod is free, the picks are free, and you get to build your bankroll if you so choose. We like to remind all of you to check us out on both Twitter and Facebook, along with our website, theoraclesports.com, where there is a plethora of content, including our daily crystal ball plays, written by yours truly, and our various packages that grant you access to Jeff's comprehensive coverage of all things football, basketball, baseball, and yes, horse racing. Speaking of packages, our latest stated that we would win a guaranteed 70% of our plays within a 10-game stretch last weekend with a full month of free plays gifted to you in the event that we failed to hit our mark. For those keeping track, we went 8-2 last week, which by our, by our math is certainly enough 
to satisfy even the most steadfast of skeptics. So with that said, this is the Oracle and the Prophet signing off. Come back and listen to us next week after we've made your bankroll a little larger.